evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to inaugurate tonight a podcast series. My name's Martin Bidney. Uh, I am advertised above as the Beloving Imaginer. I taught uh, English and comparative literature at the university for 35 years, but during the last 15, I've realized I can write my own poetry. I like to write poetry, which is that of not a believer, but uh, I use the word belover. I looked at the word belief, and uh, I, I get a lot of my best ideas for poetic thought from uh, etymology, word origins, word derivations. And if you take a look at the word belief, you see that it's just, it's very much related to, to belove, as in beloved. Uh, leaf uh, is related to love. It's the same LF root. And in fact, you used to be able to say in, in English, uh, I would leaf uh, uh, go uh, for a walk in the park today, even though it's raining, who cares? It's better than staying home. And then somebody else might reply, Ah, I would leave her walk in the park during the rain that at any other time. I love the rain. So leaf means lovingly, with love. So I think that's what belief originally meant in the first place. It didn't mean simply the intellectual uh, agreement to the truth of some assertion about uh, what is uh, inadequately attested by intellect alone. That kind of technicality belongs to a later age and I think a more faded age. What belief really means and meant was to, was to be love. It, it had to do with attraction and being powerfully uh, drawn to something with a surge of affection. There's believing that as beloving. And uh, what is it then that I uh, 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 do when I am beloving? I am imagining. It's an act of imagination. So the beloving imaginer. And what is it that I like to Beloved in my imagining, I like to love and to be loved the, uh, uh, the, the kinds of poets that I choose as my mentors. I choose them as mentors and friends, as colleagues and spiritual comrades to converse with. And uh, one of these is Shakespeare. Uh, I have written a book, which, as you see, is uh, called Shakespeare pair. There are two of us. In fact, uh, uh, the, the portraits even make us look alike. Uh, my portrait was taken uh, in my early 30s, right before I got married, and Shakespeare seems to be about the same age as maybe he was when he was writing these poems. What kind of a collection is this? And what kinds of collections do, do I center all of my beloved imagining upon? I like the kinds of poem collections which take over the traditional function of testament or life bible or scripture writing uh, and uh, assign that to not to the prophet but to the poet. Uh, there are lots of writings of this kind, and Shakespeare provides a very interesting example. He, his book of sonnets is a kind of testament, and uh, uh, of, of what is it a testament? Of an outlook, an attitude to life, particularly to love life, which is the center of his interest in his collection of 154 sonnets. Love life is his central interest and around it everything circulates or, or else uh, radiates from it. Uh, love is uh, regarded by Shakespeare from a special point of view in this poem. It's a path-breaking point of view of very great import for us today. Nothing could be more relevant than our 
con the conversation that we will be having in our book Shakespeare together. It is, uh, I, uh, let me uh, finish on the theme of what it is that I beloved. Shake, um, Scripture-like poetry, um, poetry that is um, um, a testament about the the life of the writer and indeed i have written above in my uh logo uh be the scripture you sing scriptural works often were highly melodious and singable examples are the quran the torah the gospels the uh, psalms of david and i am a musical poet and everything i write is musical so i like to sing scriptures and uh, uh of um uh the Sonnets of Shakespeare, it could be said that the uh, testament is one of an outlook, an outlook on life and on art, and on the blending of life and art in imagining uh, yourself and recreating it. Uh, what is that outlook? Inclusive, comprehensive, broad, welcoming, receptive, and since we're talking about love life here, if you want to sum it up in one word, bisexual would be the word. Shakespeare, or Shakespeare's imagination does not allow itself to be confined or uh, limited. Uh, he redefines categories. He explodes borders and uh, uh, boundaries. He defines everything anew as he would wish to do. And so that's the kind of book he has written. Now, how am I going to do my beloved imagining with this man? Uh, well, it's a, it, it's, uh, uh, I've got a, a great formula for that. It's the formula of a talk show. I'm going to be the talk show host, and he's going to be my guest. He will write, uh, each time he appears on our show, a sonnet, which means a 14-line poem. Always short, always 14 lines. And uh, I am going to reply to every one of his sonnets with a sonnet of my own composition. My sonnets uh, will uh, emulate, not slavishly Im Im imitate, but in a spirit of friendly rivalry compete with, uh, while I attempt very carefully to master the details of the formal structure of the form that Shakespeare like the best. I want to explain that in building a bridge between me and my mentor friends, I always want to start from where they live, not from where I live. So I start by inserting myself into the mentality that they most love to embody, their, uh, the, most love to embody in their writing, and I enter this spirit by entering the form of the writing. I try to get into his mind by thinking in the forms that he most personally loved to think in. So let's start out and see how this works in our conversations. Let's begin then with sonnet number one by Shakespeare. From fairest creatures we desire increase, that thereby beauty's rose might never die. But as the riper should by time decease, his tender air might bear his memory. This quite wonderfully encapsulates everything that I've said in direct and specific vivid application. What do we learn here? 
from fairest creatures we desire increase, that thereby beauty's rose might never die. He's going to talk about the fairest of creatures, namely his boyfriend, and, the, and that boyfriend is an embodiment of uh, beauty itself, the very rose of beauty. And uh, we want it to increase so that it might never die. In other words, the rose, the beauty, should have children. And in fact, for 39 uh, sonnets, Shakespeare will continually be telling his boyfriend to get married and have kids, to pay forward the uh, beauties with which he has so generously been uh, uh, endowed. That it's a remarkable idea. And it, uh, uh, what the, the defiance of the traditional gender boundaries is manifest from the very start because the rose has been deemed throughout the centuries as the most feminine emblem that could possibly be contemplated. If you consider the rose for a moment, just envision it carefully, you will see that in its structure, and texture, it is intensely feminine and womanly. And if you add to that the fragrance and the color, the, the womanly presence becomes quite overwhelming. So to call your boyfriend beauty's rose is definitely a departure from convention. That's the big point I've been making so far. Bisexual Shakespeare as teaching us a broadening, a deepening, and an enriching of attitude toward love life. But thou contracted to thine own bright eyes, loving yourself and not other people, feedst thy light's flame with self-substantial fuel, making a famine where abundance lies, thyself thy foe, to thy sweet self too cruel. You see, if you don't get married and have kids, all your beauty will die. So you'll be killing off that beauty instead of letting it live on and on. Uh, you see, love is selfish. Lo if it is not giving, love means giving, and without it, it isn't love. Thou that art now the world's fresh ornament, that's interesting, isn't it? Really develops uh, in, f we're, full we're full speed ahead with the rose theme. Thou that art now the world's fresh ornament, you are the, the latest beautiful decoration of the, of the world and only heralds to the gaudy spring. You, boyfriend, are the only fitting messenger and announcer and proclaimer of the vivid colors of the springtime. Within thine own blood buriest thy content and tender churl makest waste in niggarding, that is, hoarding, miserly behavior. Pity the world, or else this glutton be to eat the world's dew by the grave and thee. Do something nice for the world, okay? Pay it forward, spread beauty around, and don't hog it to yourself. Nice little poem, and very defiant of, of gender stereotypes, as I pointed out. The intensely feminine symbol of the rose is applied to a man. And here's my reply. The beauty rose, a man. Remarkable. Another man is telling him that he had best beget, lest love might die with full ascent unrealized. A penury though clothed in seeming riches. If self-prized, you nothing sowed, lived unproductively, regardless of the offspring dreamed, despised as barren death's own narrow home you'd be. Who doesn't wish to give, but shyly keeps the miser what is in him to bestow, in unawakened enervation sleeps, that will not let the eye or others grow. 
for love must lend. Remain neglectful of the giving wisdom, and you'll never love. You know, can't you see how uh, what an ingratiating talk show host I am trying to be? I am repeating what the speaker, the, the, the Shakespeare fictive narrator, who's yet so close to his own life that he calls him Will, to indicate that he is not very far distant from the real life William Shakespeare. Uh, I write, uh, I try to show that I'm elaborating his thought in the most sympathetic way. And all I do is more or less... Uh, play variations on what he himself has just said. So let's move on, all right? These are fun to do. Here's Sonnet 4. Unthrifty loveliness, why dost thou spend upon thyself thy beauty's legacy? Nature's bequest gives nothing, but doth lend, and being frank, she lends to those are free. Then beauteous niggard, Miser, why dost thou abuse the bounteous largest given thee to give? Profitless usurer, why dost thou use so great a sum of sums, yet canst not live? You could win all kinds of love by sh sharing it because you have so many gifts, so many beauties. Instead, like some kind of a loan shark, you keep it all to yourself, but that's not the way to increase it. The way to increase any a kind of love is to invest it. For having traffic with thyself alone, Oh, boy, oh, boy, we really focused on the problem here. F having traffic with yourself alone is just not the way to do it. Thou of thyself, thou sweet self, dost deceive. Then how, when nature calls thee to be gone, what acceptable audit canst thou leave? You'll be in debt. You'll be in debt because you did not invest anything, in either wisely or, or at all, indeed, because an investment in the self is really uh, so narrowing and constricting, it's, it's like a non-investment altogether. Thy unused beauty must be tombed with thee, which used lives the executor to be. You could, if you put your wealth to good invested use, you can be the executor of your own will, so to speak, while you're alive. Instead of that, you'll be the executioner. Your beauty will die with you. And here's my reply. I try to do Shakespeare word plays on the materials he gave me to show how much I care for his world. Executor and executioner, bequest or death, one cannot help but choose. You've heard that rule before, but we prefer to rail relentless, let you not refuse. Your venture capital will get no wage if not invested capital offense. So mortgage assets that by mortal gauge earned profit early may reward good sense. A self-regarding passion merely means the bills that bear your image cannot pay. Who proudly in the dreaming mirror preens will find his mintage melted quite away. Ah, we've got this trafficking with yourself. Your, the, the, the gold coins of your love will melt. They will be liquidated. They will be liquefied. I think the meaning is sufficiently clear, don't you? Be shamed who thus can liquidate accounts. As income dwindles, debt unpaid yet mounts. These are all good pieces of entertainment. In fact, next uh, one I've chosen, Sonnet 6, uh, he's becoming downright playful. 
then let not winter's ragged hand deface in thee thy summer ere thou be distilled make some sweet vial treasure that some place with beauty's treasure uh, Treasure thou some place with beauty's treasure, ere it be self-killed. That use is not forbidden usury, which happies those that pay the willing loan. That's for thyself to breed another thee, or ten times happier, be it ten for one. Ten times thyself were happier than thou art. If ten of thine ten times refigured thee, then what could death do if thou shouldst depart, leaving thee living in posterity? Be not self-willed, for thou art much too fair to be death's conquest and make worms thine heir. So, don't just get married and have kids. I want you to have 10 kids minimum. I enjoyed thinking about that. I'm 76. I just turned 76. I hope I don't look that. In fact, the cab driver said I didn't. And so I, I assured him, I said, 76 is younger than it used to be. But in any case, I'm a little old to be having 10 kids, but I could write 10 books. And so I thought, let's rethink our notion of progeny here for a moment. 10 children, quite an order. How shall we regard this unrelenting sermon urge? It's not too foreign to the likes of me, who with a singer's lyring drive would merge. I want to copy writers whom I love. There's the belover theme and pleased would be their minds to multiply. Let in my lines appear the image of the one who shines abiding in the sky. Ten children? Books, when one this meaning picks. That would indeed be fine. Or many more, each mirroring in doubled picture mix, the one who writes and him that wrote before. Spry science, imaged multiplicities, abundant Sons of wonder, young one sees. I really had fun with that. Having 10 kids, yes, let's have, let's write at least 10 books. You may have noticed something, get uh, uh, an accumulated impression that perhaps is building up in you, that uh, while it's enthusiastic and witty and gracefully written always, uh, one sonnet after another, for, as I pointed out, a total of 39, and that's just at the beginning of the book. That's almost a third of the entire book, but he comes back to the theme later on. Uh, quite often, uh, a whole lot of this book is devoted not only to the boyfriend, but to lecturing him to pay it forward. Isn't that a bit obsessive? It is a bit obsessive. And I even have a friend who's a, a, a college English prof, and he said that he personally does not have any children, and he, find, he found this really quite annoying. And he was interested to see how I would deal with it. And I'll tell you how I deal with the obsessive part of it, and it's possibly irritating consequences. I try simply to understand it. Where is it coming from? And if this is an obsession, how and why did it arise? I'm actually going to try to do that, uh, to analyze from that perspective in my reply to the next sonnet. So we proceed now to sonnet number nine. Is it for fear to wet a widow's eye that thou consumest thyself in single life? Ah, if thou issueless shalt hap to die, the world will wail thee like a makeless wife. That means uh, mateless. <coughs> 
the world will be thy widow and still weep that thou no form of thee hast left behind when every private widow well may keep by children's eyes her husband's shape in mind look what an unthrift in the world doth spend shifts but his place for still the world enjoys it but beauty's waste hath in the world an end and kept unused the user so destroys it if you squander everybody gets the benefit of that if you hoard nobody gets the benefit of that no love toward others in that bosom sits that on himself such murderous shame commits <laughs> Would you believe I had a sore throat last week? It knocked me on my back for a week. I thought I had finally defeated it, and uh, I resolved to do so now. Offense against the world, that's what he calls it, as sin may be. The progeny concern, how biblical. God intervened, saved Sarah from not having any kids. Later he did that for Hannah. Barren womb, be full. Why direct the agitated ire against one victim out of all the rest? Why bother your boyfriend with it all? Why not go out and preach to a whole lot of other people? Perhaps an anguished, banked-up passion fire is bright for one the writer loved the best. Mere singleness, a crime? I can't grasp why, unless the love of woman would allow the poet's comrade to identify with him more fully than he can right now. Reflected in the grateful, graceful lady eyes, the lover loves, the friend identifies. Okay, if your best friend is getting happier and more excited, uh, and you empathize and intuit how he feels and want to feel the same way, won't you get happier and more excited? And now if you look at that woman and you feel what he is feeling when he looks at that same woman, aren't you loving her and him at the same time? And don't you get the double rewards of a double love? Remarkable, isn't it? You can see why perhaps he's not anxious to give up this policy, but keeps on with it. Now I've got a little surprise for you. It's a surprise because there's, it's so, uh, you thought you knew all about this, but all, you only turn a few pages to Sonnet 18 and listen to what I'm going to, to say to you now. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? You probably read that in junior high, or maybe it was high school. That's one of the ones that the teachers consider safe because there's nothing embarrassing that they'll be forced to talk about, like that one about uh, uh, liquidating the, the gold or liquefying it in uh, uh, trafficking with oneself. Instead, this is perfectly harmless, except that uh, what they don't tell you in high school is that it's his boyfriend he's comparing to a summer day and not some woman. Thou art more lovely and more temperate than a summer's day. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed, and every fair from fair sometime declines, by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, nor shall death brag thou wanderst in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest.
so long as men can breathe or eyes can see so long lives this and this gives life to thee he gets to praise his own poetry that's always a pleasant thing for a poet to be able to do uh, uh but um uh, the main reason that his uh, poetry is going to live is that he is presenting such an attractive object, much more beautiful than a summer's day. Now let's have a reply. More lovely than a summer and the bloom of darling buds that may by winds be marred. The man is made more loved in lyric room wherein he lives in beauty yet unscarred. The soaring lines are by the reader known probably from school, as well as lyric hymn of later date regarding true love lost when blossoms blown are shaken down. That's yet a finer fate than never to have loved at all. <coughs> Do you remember that? Have you ever heard that phrase? I hold it true whate'er befall. I feel it when I sorrow most. Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. That was by Tennyson. He said that in his poem, In Memoriam, which is a poem to the memory of his boyfriend who had died at sea. Indeed, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland is dedicated to the memory of his boyfriend that had died at sea. That was Jean Verdenal. Uh, Tennyson's boyfriend was named Arthur Hallam. And he spent 17 years, as I remember, writing an elegy, a, a memorial to his dead friend in, uh, uh, in a poem called In Memoriam, which won him the Poet Laureateship of Great Britain. So, a finer fate than never to have loved at all. So we, who gladly chant the lines we like to cite, might well recall each lover melody will laud two friends perpetual delight. A sacred bliss and brave, dear Benison, that means blessing, of men that Shakespeare shares with Tennyson. I'm glad I found that rhyme. It's probably the only one available. <coughs> well, in sonnet number 20, we have one of the very most striking, perspective expanding, welcoming, receptive, and deepening poems in the entire book. You're bound to be startled by it, and I can just about guarantee you did not study it in school. A woman's face with nature's own hand painted, hast thou, the master mistress of my passion. So his boyfriend is not only the master, but the mistress. And the reason that the master mistress hyphenated title is appropriate is that he has a woman's face. Nature painted it. It's the perfect woman that nature designed. A woman's gentle heart, but not acquainted with shifting change as is false women's fashion. An eye more bright than theirs, less false in rolling, gilding the object whereupon it gazeth. I have to say, I have to apologize for these bits of misogyny. Uh, this is the 1590s and they're not quite updated. A man in hue, all hues in his controlling, which steals men's eyes and women's souls amazes. 
So being double-sexed, so to speak, uh, in his appeal, um, the boyfriend is equally beloved of men and of women. And now this is why, listen to this, it's extraordinary, utterly extraordinary. <coughs> Before I continue, I should point out that it was thoroughly controversial in its time and after. These poems were published in 1609, we don't know why suddenly, 10 years after most of them were written. Uh, but then in 1640, came along a guy named John Benson who revised these poems and edited all the ones uh, uh, to the boyfriend so that they would appear to be poems to some woman. And it was that uh, censored edition, that, which was the only one available to readers of this work on, in, on the continent of Europe or in Great Britain for 150 years, till finally the error was rectified by the great Shakespeare scholar and critic Edmund Malone. And now we have the real text. Otherwise, if we had lived between um, 1640 and 1780, we would have had to read the censored version. Isn't that interesting? Some of the things that, are, uh, that excite controversy today were already dealt with and dealt with with uh, uh, astonishing vigor and courage in the 1790s by William Shakespeare's narrator. Now listen to what he says to the boyfriend. And for a woman wert thou first created, till nature, as she wrought thee, fell a-doting. I wonder what that means. Is nature, who's been around for a long time, getting a bit of dementia? Or is she just uh, getting distracted? S something or other happened to nature when uh, she was creating this being who was designed to be a woman. For a woman wert thou first created, till nature, as she wrought thee, fell a-doting, and by addition, me of thee defeated, by adding one thing to my purpose, nothing. But since she pricked thee out for women's pleasure, mine be thy love, and thy love's use their treasure. Interesting, huh? So um, nature was busy making a woman, or she thought she was making a woman, and then she um, absent-mindedly added a certain body part that women don't absolutely need. Uh, but Shakespeare is, is not unhappy about that. He says, uh, uh, that's all right. Women will enjoy it more the fact, because you're equipped with this extra organ. But uh, I, I see your essential, uh, more, more, what's more obvious to me, your womanly nature. And so um, I'll love you all the same and let them have the physical affair. It sounds like he's saying he's, he'll be content with a more spiritual kind of love. But then he said also... Did you forget this already? A woman's face with nature's own hand painted hast thou, the master mistress of my passion. So it's not really so spiritual as the scholars had claimed for decades because they had not caught up with the year 2019. We're doing that today. You see what how radical Shakespeare is. You see how vision transforming and life reshaping Shakespeare is. And here's my reply. One added organ has the androgyne, unneeded for the spiritual love the smitten poet cultivates. A fine summation is afforded, writing of the double-gendered rare attractiveness in the prodigious wizardry of one whom all admire will profit liar no less than women's opportunity for fun. The Mona Lisa, Bacchus, Anne, and John depict one riddling enigmatic smile. Platonic Leonardo leads you on, dualities that daunt to reconcile. 
Here man was woman first, then changed in state. Man erst, the Sistine Sibyl lady, late. Oh, I have to apologize here. I have packed so much into that that it's almost unintelligible. I don't do that very often, but I had a lot to say. And here's what I really uh, have, uh, have said implicitly in, in, the, in those uh, concluding six lines. I'm pointing out that Shakespeare is not the only gender bender. He is not the only exploder or blurrer of boundaries and borders and, and uh, demolisher of traditional conventional restrictions. Christopher Marlowe writes predominantly gay poetry. And uh, so you cannot have the English dramatic renaissance, Shakespeare and Marlowe, without plenty of bisexual imaginings. And you can't have the Italian renaissance in art without this either. If you think about Leonardo, he gave the Mona Lisa smile to St. Anne, but also to Bacchus, the male god of wine, and St. John. And how about Hercules? I didn't have time in my poem to mention that too. It doesn't matter who gets this smile. I think of it as a motherly smile. I think of it as the most primal thing in the mind of Leonardo all his life. That wonderful motherly smile. Uh, he had, he, well, we'll, I think that's enough on that because we have, I have to explain what I, uh, what I have to say about Michelangelo who looks at uh, bisexuality from another uh, direction. Uh, Michelangelo doesn't start with a womanly, motherly smile and then deliver it to men and women on equal terms. Instead, uh, he has he starts with his ideal of the to total human perfect, perfect beauty, and that is the um, exquisitely muscular, masculine body. And then, if he if uh, it is required by the purposes of his task or plan to paint women, he'll paint a woman, but it'll have a rather, she'll have a very sturdy body like that of a male athlete, and then perhaps some breasts will be added. But, um, and that is exactly what happens in the Sibyls, who are the oracular Roman women depicted in the uh, uh, Sistine Chapel. So, in Italian art and in English poetry, the bisexual um, ideal continues uh, and is uh, very thoroughly uh, um, developed. Shall I, do I have time for another? No, I'm trying to think what would be a nice one. Oh, well now this is fun. Uh, here in Sonnet 109, he's still talking about his boyfriend as a rose, uh, but it, it, it's a little different and my response is a little different. Oh, never say that I was false of heart. Though absence seemed my flame to qualify, as easy might I from myself depart as from my soul, which in thy breast doth lie. That is my home of love. If I have ranged like him that travels, I return again, just to the time, not with the time exchanged, so that myself bring water for my stain. Never believe, though in my nature reigned all frailties, that besiege all kinds of blood, that it could so preposterously be stained to leave for nothing all thy sum of good. Being without you is get is being with what? Nothing. For nothing this wide universe I call. I call this whole universe nothing, save thou 
except for you, my rose. In it, thou art my all. You see, when I said in those four lines he was predicting the whole book, I was right. <coughs> and now let's have my reply. We note again the emblematic rose that opened all the volume candidly. We, it may recall, so commentators glows, a fragrant female sexuality. And we, entranced by Dante's paradise, mark heaven's flower with aromatic balm, the sense's life the spirit will entice, but to enhance the power of wider calm. Dante in paradise represents the assembled circle of saints in a kind of amphitheater around the throne of God as petals in a rose. I think that's because he thinks of them collectively as something like a female receptive flower chalice upon which the sun of heaven shines and which is nourished by the celestial dew. What I'm doing here is really getting into the Shakespeare spirit and going into a reverie, a kind of uh, uh, dream fantasy of the rose on my own behalf. The bloom of beauty's charm but sways above the darker heart of underworldly weal. To highest patterns of divinest love will Pluto Plutus buried wealth appeal. The rich aromad rose can so portray a rhododactyl rise from night to day. I think you can get the meaning of that without some help, but maybe we'll give you some anyway just to speed the process. I'm suggesting that the rose is not just, as for Dante, a heavenly flower, but it's rich and earthy, as earthy as Shakespeare's poetry, because it, it comes from the, the richness of the soil. Uh, and in, in fact, in uh, Roman mythology, Pluto, the god of the underworld, has almost the same name as Plutus, the god of wealth, suggesting that our deepest wealth is in the depth and the richness of earth. The rich aromad rose can so portray a rhododactyl rise. Rhododactyl means rosy-fingered. That is the sun, which is uh, red and gold, and, and which arises in the morning from, from uh, night to day as, as it uh, starts to fill the sky. That's how the rose, the flower rose, ascends from the night of the underworld to the heaven of the celestial saints in Dante and to the glorification of the boyfriend in the bisexual view of that uh, uh, writer of a testament of a more adventurous than customary sexual imagination in the uh, uh, sonnets of Shakespeare and perhaps as more fully developed and elaborated in Shakespeare. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.